This week has been a wrestling when it comes to <clears throat> preaching. Uh, I, I never have to worry about knowing what I, what I need to preach, but this week it, it sort of just kind of hung out there. So I'm not quite sure what the Lord has in mind today, but I do know that this is ultimately where we ended up. And I want to talk to, to you guys today about where we go, or, or the idea of that we go where we get our needs met. Okay, Here's a simple... Uh, analogy of that if you're hungry you go to a kitchen (laughs) whether it be in your house or you go to a restaurant because you know that you can go there and get your need met for food if you are uh, lonely and you have a friend then you will either call them or you'll go to their home because you know you'll get your need met there all right so the idea is we go where we get our needs met now there are two groups of people here today uh, a lot of you, I know, know Jesus personally. You've shared your testimony with me before. You have a, you have a good testimony of faith you, and repentance. You told me, I'm able to communicate to me when you became a Christian and what happened and the events surrounding that. Then there are others of you, though, who don't know Jesus yet today. And you're seeking. You're, you're wondering what it is to know God and, and to actually be able to to comprehend that kind of a relationship. Um, That's why our sign out there says it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And, you know, religion left to itself gives you a nice list of things that you can try to do to the best of your ability to appease God and, and to somehow gain some kind of credibility with Him so that He might look your way. A relationship with God, though, is found only in Christ, whereby not only... Do you get a changed heart? You get the life-dwelling presence of God in the power and the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. It's an exchanged life. To know Christ is you're giving Him your sinful, rotten self of a life, and He's giving you His righteous life. So that when God looks upon you, He sees the blood of His Son shed on your, on your life, So now for you are justified because of that as if you had never sinned but justified before God to be uh, not guilty anymore. So it's an exchanged life and it's 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 a life that Christ lives in you now. That doesn't mean you live perfectly but it means that you have now been captivated by the love of God and it's no longer you who live but Christ that lives in you. So in preparing for this message, and it was a real wrestling, I have to just say, uh, I'm not one of those that really plans out sermons. I, I like to kind of know what we need to talk about. I, I really just, I do, I, I do expository messages. I think I'm setting up to, to go through a book again, but uh, I like to know where I'm preaching. I need to know it's, it's what needs to be preached that day. But I was reading in John chapter 7, verses, in verse 53, and then it goes into chapter 8 and verse 1. So it's just a tiny little couplet there. And here's simply the verse. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Okay? Everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now this happened after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 People had gathered around Jesus and got one heck of a buffet. I mean, they had a lot of food, which we're going to look at here in a minute. They got their need met. Their gut was empty. They got it filled up. 
okay? And it just blew them away. In fact, they wanted to make Jesus king by force, but he left out in the night. And they woke up the next day, and they couldn't find him. They heard he was over here, and they went and chased him down again. And you'd think, wow, they were just so captivated with Jesus. They wanted nothing but Jesus. But Jesus knew what they really wanted. They wanted more bread and more fish. And I think that's how it can be many times. People are so fickle. And, uh, and, and I'm a person. I can say that. Uh, I come, I, I mean, I have experience with me. I can be very fickle. And sometimes I can actually misunderstand uh, my zeal for God being more about what I'd like to get out of Him rather than what He wants to do in me. And He won't bless that. But He will bless a pure motive. So if you're here today and you genuinely want to know Jesus, listen. If you're a Christian here today and you've grown, well, less, you've not grown up, you've kind of just stayed there, then listen, you've grown stagnant. This comment by uh, Horatius Bonar last week that I read, I looked for the church and I found it in the world. I looked for the world and I found it in the church is a very stinging rebuke from his day about how we can become as Christians many times. We want Jesus, and many of us have met the Lord genuinely, but somehow we've been taken in by the world and all the machinations and the drawings that can come from it. And we look at it, and we're, and we're allured by it. Why do, why do they have billboards down the highway to draw you into what they're trying to sell you? Even if it's a bathroom, because these two, as you're going along the interstate right here by Jerome, I mean, we all know that that's where you go to the bathroom, okay? So their billboard's working, because they can get you in the store, so you'll buy something, because they want your money, okay? That's what that's about. They don't care about your bladder that much. Uh, but, but that's just how it is. So the world comes at you to say, we're going to provide the best service for you. And I always just make, in my mind, whenever I, I hear these businesses, we care about you. I wish they had just put a semicolon there and say, and your money. Okay, but there's nothing wrong with trying to make a living and provide a good service, and that's fine. I don't want to pick too hard, but I do want to say this. It's, it's evident by our culture that the church reflects more of the world than it reflects of Jesus. Okay? And you say, well, prove it. I say, go look outside. Most of what you see happening and being passed would not be tolerated by an alive church. They would not stand for it. The outcry would be too great. But sad to say is many churches, and losing, losing the term there, would be in total agreement to it. But back to this, if you're captivated by Jesus and you're turning away from the world, then what John Piper said makes more sense. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So satisfaction, then, is really the main result of having your greatest needs met. You are satisfied. Um, sometimes I can cook a piece of meat and whew, on that grill, and you have to understand something. When when your when your smoke's just right, and that and that meat's tenderized, and you've got 
just the right flavor and you put that on there and you let it absorb to create a little smoke ring around it, about a quarter of an inch. And then you turn it up and you caramelize those juices and you begin to saw and you begin and those juices leak out and it kind of and it kind of gets into your whatever you have on the side there and you take that in. Man, that's just satisfying. So how many of you did I just mess up? Okay, because that's what I was trying. Like, I had it. You had me at stake. But it truly is just a, a total set. The need for beef is met. Okay, and if you're a vegetarian, I don't know what you do. So, uh, <laughs> okay, go cook a marsh, uh, a mushroom or something. But it won't compare. But I'm saying, when we come to Jesus and, and He to our soul is like that, and we, and we come to Him in, in the time of prayer, and we spend that time with Him, we're literally captivated and taken up because we know He's with us. And it doesn't mean that there's an absence of conflict because I think the higher that we get in that plane of praying that there'll be a greater conflict, but there's also a greater glory that satisfies your soul. And you can't help but go there because that's the place you go to get your need met. So back to this real quick. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. What that verse is simply saying is they were having a hard time making up their mind who he was. They knew what they thought they wanted. But they went back home. Jesus went to the mountain to pray. He knew where he would go to get his need met. And that's what screams to me out out of that verse there. I'm reading a new book here called uh, The Hidden Life of Prayer. Now, he has a really weird name. There's no McIntyre in it. There's no small c. So... I'm going to do my best, don't make fun of me, but I do believe it's David Emmentire. I don't know how else to say it, Emmentire. There's no s. So, but uh, he was a, uh, a, a Scottish uh, pastor, and he wrote, this is probably, of all the books I've read on prayer to date, this is probably the absolute best book on the practical nature of having an effective prayer life. It is incredibly written, um, the thoughts that he has are so rich and applicable to us. In fact, he writes about how in Luke chapter 5, 16, if you go to the verse, it says, and it was as Jesus' custom was, he would, he would often steal away by himself and, and he would go and pray. And so Luke 5, 16, as David writes, Mr. Mintire here says, tells us that it was his or Jesus' habit to withdraw himself into the wilderness and pray. The King James Version does not give us the force of the original Greek in this verse. Dean Vaughn comments on it by saying, it was not one withdrawal that Jesus would go into the wilderness to pray. It wasn't a one-time thing. Uh, Nor was it one wilderness. Nor was it one prayer. All is plural then in this verse in the original Greek. The withdrawals were repeated. The wilderness were more than one. The prayers were habitual. And all of this while crowds were swarming and pressing in on him. Yet he found time to pray. And then he writes this, and I thought this was captivating. His prayers were strenuous and warlike. 
Remember last Sunday, I, I happened to mention briefly that we've taken the word to pray and we've so tamed that word that we've lost the ferocity of it, the seriousness of it. Can you be warlike when you pray? Well, you better believe Jesus was. We pray for our food. We pray to have a good day. We pray for, the, for it to stop raining so we can go do what we want to do. But when we come in warlike, strenuous uh, cries and agonies of intercession on behalf of loved ones that need Christ, on behalf of a wicked world who, as I literally believe we should pray, that God would expose the lies and reveal the truth as though it were set on a high hill, painted bright white so that all the world could see. When we begin to pray like that with agony and with, with crying and with anguish, but determination and ferocity, I think prayer begins to become what it was intended to be the nuclear option. That's how Jesus prayed. And it wasn't just sometimes. As I've been going through my studies, I find that it is so easy, very easy, to find a multitude of academic and devotional works on Jesus' teachings. But when it comes to identifying the strenuous, committed disciplined prayer life of his you don't find much and this was one thing that he modeled more than any other characteristic was his praying I believe it's the answer to this to all of it um man my brain it's a thought hanging out there i'm trying to get it to land right here well no uh, it's right there right leonard ravenhill okay leonard ravenhill anyone okay wrote many many books on revival and on praying and he even had one called revival praying the whole book is one giant exclamation point because the man can't just say anything. He screams it, even on the page. It's just one like, ah, and when you read it, it's just like that the whole way through. But he said that he believed with all his heart if he could get 500 Christians, pastors, teachers, just laymen and women in one place for a week in, in, in devoted, disciplined, agonizing prayer for revival, he believed it would happen. Because God moves in that. You know, Dwight L. Moody, when he was, uh, when he heard it, I think he, it, it is commented that he had heard someone say, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man that is fully committed and sold out to him. And Dwight L. Moody says, I'll be that man. And we know what happened with Dwight L. Moody. A shoe salesman went around the world preaching the gospel. Well, let's think about this real quick. When it comes to Jesus, what you ask of Him reveals what you want from Him. And, and to, to nuance this down a little, I would say it this way. When it comes to the person of Jesus in your life, what you ask of Him reveals really what you think of him and what you expect of him and desire the most of from him 
okay? It was just too much to write right there. Turn with me to John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this is before the scripture we read at the very first. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And you can better believe that was impressive. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? It was a setup for Philip and the disciples. By this, notice verse 6, But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I want to say something right here. It's just, it's just right in the text staring at you in the face. Don't you dare ever think that you can sneak an ulterior motive past Jesus. Okay. Don't you think for a second that you can pull one over on him. Okay. He set him up to reveal something. Let's see what it was. Philip said, I'm sure there was a... There, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. This would be what we would call an imperative in the English language. That's that, Jesus. (laughs) One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. I like how Jesus doesn't debate. He just does. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And I notice this, the disciples to those sitting down. So to the disciples and to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted when it comes to the grace of God, people, you have to understand that he's not even, even into giving little things. I'm here to tell you, there's a vast difference between the way Jesus gives and the way the world gives. And I can say that from the 1970s kid that I was that used to eat ding-dongs that were wrapped in the foil package. Anyone remember those? And they were about that big back then. And now they're about that big. And they're in plastic. And it's a rip-off. Okay, so they get less and less, but I want to tell you, God gives more and more, and he knew what they would do, and he wanted to show something that he is capable of giving more than you could ever ask or think, and he had to show that. He wanted to show that as much as they wanted. So I I got a question, This this rhetorical, what do you want, and how much of it do you want? When it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the Holy Spirit of God, when it comes to His mission for you in this life, when it comes to your walk with Him and your relationship with Him, how much do you want? So when they were filled, and I like that, you don't come away from Jesus being empty. You're going to be filled up. He said, 
Gather up the fragments and that remain so that nothing is lost because Jesus can use even the crumbs of your petty offerings to do a great work. Don't shortchange yourself, yourself, saint. Don't tell me that you don't know enough Bible to make a difference in someone's life. If you've met Jesus, you got His Word written on your heart. If you've met Jesus, you have now become a, a conduit of the very lifeblood of Jesus Christ through the Godhead that dwells in you. You can tell someone how Jesus saved you. You can pray for their soul. And like a tow missile, you can direct it right to their greatest need. Therefore they gathered them up, filled the twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And then, of course, if you read 15, and I'm not going to, we don't have time, but Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, but it was for all the wrong reasons. The things I want to kind of highlight here in this passage, these passages of Scripture, the pericope, is that a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. It's so easy to gain a crowd. Anybody can gain a crowd. Ramon could go out here, hold up a sign and says, if you'll just stop, I'll give you a $100 bill and he's going to get a crowd. Okay, and he doesn't have to do anything but stand there. What's the motive? What are you selling? In verse 11 and 12 of that same group of texts, it says, And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those setting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. And so they were filled. And he wanted to make sure that none of the crumbs were lost. In this too, we see Jesus manifesting just how great he is by the major amount of mercy which we, he can expend even on a group that isn't seeking him for the right reasons because you have to remember something. We all come to Jesus the same way in our sin and unbelief. Be, be very careful before you criticize this bunch too hard. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verses 22 through 40 reveal something else that I want us to see. On the following day, so there was that day that he fed everybody, nighttime came. The following day, they knew Jesus wasn't there. When the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus, so far, so good. And when they found him on the other side of the, the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And, and I can almost hear them thinking, and are the ovens on? Okay, Is the, are the grills hot? 
and I'll take mine with some lemon. By the way, I, I despise lemon on fish, but I'm just saying, I, I want the, you know, and Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, because you can't hide anything. You seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the, of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor, he says, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now notice this part, okay? Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the work of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said, what sign will you perform then? Are you kidding me? How? I don't even, I don't know the word to describe the arrogance of that kind of response after what they had observed. Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and verse 36 qualifies what Jesus' problem was that he was trying to show them, that he said, you do not believe, you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me. Now notice this, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So that's the stage set for what began to happen. They begin to complain among themselves and say, well, he could be the Messiah, he couldn't be the Messiah. And it turned into a big old argument and they went away to their houses, but Jesus, he went up on the mountain to pray. <clears throat> the interesting part of this is the emphasis with which Jesus draws them to. You do, you do not seek me for me, but you seek me for the, for the benefits that I can give you. And I want you to know something. Adrian Rogers said it best years ago. I was on the tractor down by the creek rolling some ground, getting ready to drill wheat then. And, uh, and Adrian Rogers said this statement because I had just turned because I get as close as I can before I turn. Okay? And it was close that day. And, uh, and Adrian Rogers said, and he, I quote, I would be a follower of Jesus Christ even if I still went to hell when I died because even the life with Jesus in one aspect by itself is, is enough. That's what he said. When you know Jesus relationally, there's something that happens to the inside of you. No, all of your troubles don't disappear. No, you're not going to become a perfect little person going traipsing about on the clouds. Okay? 
No, you won't always be a joy. Yes, you'll still have bad moods and bad days and bad weeks. I've even been in a bad mood for a few years. Okay? It happens. But I want you to know that inside that place where God dwells, He never stops loving. He never stops compelling. He never stops growing. He never stops drawing. And the harder you get down in it, the more drawn to you He becomes so that you can't out His grace. You can't extend past His mercy. When you're His child, you will remain His child. And even in the clouds of glory, when you break through, it won't be in a clump. He's going to love you too for you. And I like the fact that it's a one-on-one relationship. So don't get so hard on yourself that you forget the majesty with which He loves you. But if you don't know Jesus, just like He's saying to these people here, it says some of them actually went away because when we approach Jesus... Our true motive will always reveal itself by what we emphasize about Him. Some people in our world today want to prop up the love of God to the exclusion of His justice, but they want to do it to justify their sin. Okay? But then on the same hand, this is, how, this is how wicked we can be. There are those who want to exalt the justice of God to the exclusion of His love because they too want to prop up their sin. And I say, just give us the real Jesus. As He's manifesting as God in the flesh, full of mercy and truth and justice and all of it in perfect order and balance. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, I want to tell you, to know Him is to live. It's to be pulled up out of that slimy, sticky, greasy pit that you've been living in. It's about finding what he thinks about you and seeing what the enemy has been trying trying to do to you for so long. It's about turning away from sin and living for Jesus, knowing that now you don't walk alone anymore. Bring your sins to Jesus and be free. Set free. There are those who wanted to hang up in religion There are those that wanted to hang up with just, if you're not going to give me a a stake, I'm not staying. And then there are those who said, you have the words of eternal life. When we approach Jesus, our true motive will always reveal itself. Verse 58 through 61, I'll just highlight these here. He said, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Can you imagine that scene? The thousands that are there gathered round. Therefore, 
Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. I don't think it was quite so abstract, but this is confusing. No bread? No fish? No interest. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said, does this offend you? Well, does this offend you? In 66 through 69, we read, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So I want to ask you a question. Were they really his disciples? No. They were posers in it for the benefits. Okay? So, one day in our American bubble of, 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 of uh, Christianity that is so sweet and comfortable and sanitized, we're going to have to maybe make a choice between our serving the Lord Jesus and being faithful to His commands or losing our job or going to jail. Start with the preachers first. And we all know how the progression works. Your life. And to us, this is like a, you think one day it'll be like that? And then you read a Voice of the Martyrs magazine, and it's, that's how life is. That's how life has been. There are generations of Christians that that's how life is. In fact, in China, to even be considered for ministry, you have to have gone to prison. This is a true fact. You have to have gone to prison, and then you had to have had a good and faithful testimony while in prison. Did people get converted while you were in prison? Now you're out of prison again. We're looking for a pastor. You have a good testimony because these are your old cellmates. And they said he was faithful to the end. Then maybe you can be. And in some places, you can't, they won't even let you be baptized and let you go and lead others, four or five more to Jesus Christ. They take it so serious. And here we are. And it's the water heated. I want to invite you to church. I, I shared Christ Day. I invited him to church. Or, um, so there's been something I need to talk to you about. And, well, just hear me out. Uh, phew, just want you, look, everybody's got these ideas about life and stuff. And just, the point is, kind of like Jesus, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, I, you, you think on that. Okay. And they're like, you're just weird. weird. Weirded me out. Confidence by who you know comes from actually knowing. Where do you get your needs met? That's a question. There are two indispensable sources of strength and wisdom in the Christian life. The word of God and prayer. That's it. <laughs> all of the seminaries could have that up and close the door, okay, because that's it. I don't know where they come up with this mountain of curriculum, but that's it. And do you know how much you learn in seminary about praying? 
I don't, did you ever have a class in prayer? I didn't either. Did you ever have a systematic theology class? Oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. Did you have a hermeneutics class? Yes, you did. But did you learn to, to prevail in prayer there? No, you did not. Did you learn to use the Bible as a sword to wield rather than a book to just read with your coffee in the morning with your glasses? To be negligent in these great resources is to be open and vulnerable to all kinds of satanic infection. Not the least of which are, and this is not comprehensive, doubt, faithlessness, prayerlessness, and an ever-worsening apathy to the things of God. Where we go, or, or we go where we get our needs met, prayer is the vehicle that takes us to that place. And I want to end with this from David Emmentire. Okay? The equipment for the inner life of prayer is simple, if not always easily obtained, and it consists particularly of three things. You want to know how to go have a prayer closet? You want to get in touch with God in a deeper way by taking prayer to the warlike fashion that it's supposed to be? Here's what you need, a quiet place. A quiet place. Number two, you need a quiet hour. You said, oh, hour? <laughs> I like in this book, this man's so full of grace too, he writes, now, it may not mean an hour, exactly 60 minutes for you, but I want, I want you to know something. As you begin to persevere in prayer, it will grow longer. And then he says, and this is probably most important of all, a quiet heart. As I was reading, he, he began to remind me, or as he was writing about even Susanna Wesley that had 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 25 kids or something. Okay, in a one-room house. And they were just like, everywhere all day long. And she wanted to spend time with Jesus. And they knew, and I've told you this before, that she would put her apron over her head, over her table, and underneath that table was her Bible, her Bible and God. And they knew not to touch Mama when she was spending time with Jesus. That was her quiet place, her quiet hour, her quiet heart. And there was another man that had even written in this book, and he said, it amazes me that even, even in the midst of a bunch of a work crew of men, all I got to do is on our break, I pull my hat down over my eyes and suddenly I'm in the throne room. So you think it's, I mean, that's great. We have these cold rooms here. You can pray and freeze, okay? But... But I just want you to know there's a quiet place to come. But do you have a place? Like, have you ever thought about it? People have their gyms at home. They have their craft rooms at home. They got their man rooms at home. Do you have a prayer room at home? Because the kind of rooms you have or the places you go kind of reveals what your priorities are. And you know you can make a prayer room out about just anything. John Flavel said, The devil is aware that one hour of close fellowship, hearty converse with God in prayer, is able 
to pull down what he has been contriving and building many a year. If there's one thing that the Christian does that makes the devil shudder, it's to pray. And I mean pray. I'm going to close here. Dr. Moody Stewart, he writes, and I I find this to be just, wow. These are three tips for having a powerful prayer life. Number one, pray till you pray. Now, when I first read that, I thought, okay, what does that mean? Okay, what does that mean? And I figured it out. It means you got to wrestle with Amalek and your soul till you can break over the top of the hill and begin to cry out to the kingdom. Pray until you pray. Pray till you are conscious of being heard. Most of us are so fast in the prayer room, we don't know. I take it by faith. And you leave. Because you know you just really want to go get a cheeseburger. That's all it's about. That's all. You just Your knees hurt and that's all. Pray till you are conscious of being heard. How will you know that? Boy, I tell you what, I don't know, but you'll know. I know, I mean, I know it's hard to explain. Number three, this is probably the hardest of all. This is the hardest of all. Pray till you receive an answer. That could take a little while, preacher. Am I supposed to sit in there 20 years? Are you consistent? Don't give up in praying. So I'll ask the question again. Where do you go to get your needs met? Do you think of prayer that way? Do you read your Bible with with one eye in the Scripture and one eye on the throne and say, God, mediate this through me. Expose me, reveal your truth, and make me your vessel. Because that's the kind of praying, that's the only kind of praying that's going to change where we're at today in our churches and in our culture. Every single Sunday, there are faithful men, and it's not limited to men either, so there. But they, they line up over here, and they pray. Why, well, you think, what are they doing? Well, every one of them has bad knees and backs. Okay, that's why they should use the pillows. That's why we have pillows. But they pray for revival. Heaven sent, God reckoning revival they pray every sunday for that they pray for god to move upon the service they pray that right there and they take about this much space as you can see there's much more space by about i don't know what do you think 30 feet 35 feet it it's not just that that kind of praying during the song service or during the, the preaching time, it's, it's, it's not just a, you know, a, a, an, an East Coast deal. They can do it on the West Side too. Okay. You can even 
be bipartisan and be right in the middle, okay? But, but here's what I, I want us to, to see. Whenever we begin to come to church with a view to become vulnerable, to pray regardless of what's happening. Even while I'm preaching, you want to pray, you get up here. Saw another gentleman come up and pray. That blesses my heart. Because I believe with all my heart that a dry altar, absent from the tears of the saints, will never put out any fires of hell. But oh, when you come and you begin to pray and you intercede, God puts someone on your heart. Obey and pray. I ask Brother JT to come up. Here's our invitation today. Where do I go to get my needs met? Do I really believe in prayer the way that Jesus modeled it? Do I bear the marks of the battle in the prayer closet? Is the enemy shoving around on me because I have become a nuisance? Well, there's only one way to fix all that. You come and you pray. Do you know Jesus today? Really know him? Like you've met him. You can't deny him. He's inside your soul. He reassures you of that. But if you don't know Jesus, you have no assurance. And for all your religion and your Bible knowledge, you've got no hope. Be saved today. Put an end to this. Stop fighting. Yield to Jesus. And as a 12-year-old boy once did, he rolled over on his sleeping bag and he said, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. That you died on the cross for my sins. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. And make me your child. And because you said you would if I ask, I'm going to believe you did. And 36 years later, he's still doing it. Whatever your need of your heart is, you come.